Hi, this is Pastor Curtis. I want to thank you for checking out the Family Church Podcast. I hope it encourages you and inspires you to take your next step of faith. You can find out more about how to do that at our website, familychurch.xyz. And if you know a friend who needs to hear this message, please forward it on to them. I hope you enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. You know, I got to say up front, um, I'm not necessarily opposed to this new group starting, but I think that they're, I'm theologically opposed for this reason. Anything over a quarter mile, that's why God made cars. Um, So I'm going to start my own group, um, Couch to Refrigerator. How's that? Now, see, the only reason I said that is because Kyle said that, you know, there's going to be some dad jokes this morning. And so that's, that's my dad joke. And you laughed, so I guess it wasn't too bad. But a while back, um, I, uh, all the family was together, and I said, look, I said, uh, if I start telling jokes like my dad, uh, tell me. Tell me, okay, because I don't want to do that. And they said, it's too late. <laughs> Good morning. Happy Father's Day to all our dads out there. I also want to give a special shout-out to my dad, who, uh, who says he watches uh, from our eCampus church. I guess I've never followed up to see if he actually does watch. So, uh, Dad, if you are watching... Uh, taking you to your favorite place, Texas Roadhouse, for dinner. Uh, if you're not watching, never mind, all right? <laughs> Happy Father's Day to all of our dads. Uh, my Father's Day message this year is going to be a little bit different in that while we do want to honor um, all of our earthly fathers, I also wanted to honor our Heavenly Father. And one of the best ways that we can honor our Heavenly Father is by simply acknowledging, maybe you never thought about this, but just by simply acknowledging who He is and how He feels about you. Because it's not enough simply to believe in God. See, a lot of people say they believe in God. Even James, listen, even James, the brother of Jesus, tells us that the the demons believe in God and tremble. So believing in God really doesn't get you a whole lot of uh, mileage. So obviously there's, there's more to having a personal relationship with God than just believing that he exists. The great question of life isn't, do you believe in God? This Father's Day morning, I submit to you that a more important question is, what kind of God do you believe in? What kind of God do you believe in? See, for the majority of us sitting in here this morning or watching online as part of our eCampus church, for most of us, we might tend to think that not believing in God or being an atheist is probably about the worst place that you could be. But there's actually something worse than being an atheist. And that's believing in God, but having an erroneous or inaccurate view of God. See, there are many religions in the world that present many different pictures of God, and they all may contain a little bit of truth, but here's the deal. Even a broken clock will give you the correct time twice a day, won't it? But it's deceptive the rest of the day. It's not accurate the rest of the time. So one could argue that a broken clock is worse than having no clock. In the same way, if you have a false conception of God, you're really no better off than an atheist. Even during the three and a half years of Jesus' earthly ministry, as he traveled around teaching and proclaiming God, even then, everyone in his audience had their own idea or view of God, who he was and what he was like. Just like today, you've got Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, New Agers, and all the like. They they have their own ideas about what God is and what he's like. That's why our Heavenly Father sent Jesus to this planet. 
Not just to die for our sins, but also to show us exactly what the Father was like. Because listen, you can be right in every aspect of your theology, but I'm telling you, dear ones, if you miss it on Jesus, you missed it enough to lose your soul for eternity. That's why it's important for us to understand who Jesus is, and that's why God sent him to show us what he is really like. So in Luke chapter 15, Jesus shares three beautiful stories that paint a portrait of the character and the nature of God. Talk about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost son. The lost sheep shows the caring and seeking nature of God. The lost coin shows how much God values each of us and his desire for our restoration. And then the complete story of ruin to restoration is seen in the prodigal son story. Put all three of those stories together and you get a clear picture of the heart of Father God towards you and towards me. What is his heart? His heart is, it wouldn't matter if you were one out of a hundred. It wouldn't matter if you were one out of ten or even one out of two. God is relentless in his love for you, his unwavering commitment to you, and he's patient in his waiting for you. Let's read the story. Luke 15 Verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, talking about coming to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Now, at this point, Jesus presents the, the, the first of the three stories. The first story is, is the story of the shepherd who had 100 sheep, and, and one turned out missing, and it, it had wandered, hopped the fence, whatever, and, and, and how for the sake of the one, he risked he risked his life, he risked the lives of the 99 to go out and search for that one lost sheep. The next story is of a woman who had 10 coins, but, but understand, this, this wasn't like quarters, nickels, and dimes. The coins actually were the equivalent of, of like stones in an engagement ring. They, they literally represented the signal of this woman's engagement and soon-to-be wedding day. If you want to know how discouraged and devastated the woman in this parable would have been, ask Mallory, ask Lauren. They're both engaged to be married in the next few weeks. Ask them how they would feel if they lost their engagement ring. Better yet, ask them how committed they would be to finding that lost ring. That's the idea that Jesus was presenting in this second parable. And then the third story Jesus told is called the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. And in it, Jesus tells a story of a man having two sons, and it was a reasonably well-to-do man. And, and, and one of the boys said, I'd like my inheritance in advance, Dad. So his dad gave it to him. The kid went out and squandered it. And he ends up in a, literally in a pigsty, in a pig pen, trying to make a living. He finally comes to his, his senses, comes to himself. And then I want you to note with me the words at the beginning of verse 17. When he, talking about the prodigal son, finally came to his senses. Dear ones, those are among the most profound words that you will read in all of the Bible. There, there, there came a sanity, a recognition of the insensibility and the foolishness and the damage of the pathway that he had been walking. See, this world is a fickle place, isn't it? Right. On the one hand, it entices us to join hands with her right, and live it up. And in that regard, the world does have a lot to offer. Does, I mean, the Bible even concedes that. The Bible says, hey, you know, God's very honest. He says sin is fun for a season. It is fun for a season. But hold hands with the world long enough, and she will eventually break you. Not maliciously. It's just that we were never created to find fulfillment in this world. 
We were created to find our fulfillment by serving the God who created us in the first place and who died for us. That's where the prodigal son was at here. He had danced with the world, ended up working in a pigsty. Listen, even eating some of the food from the pigs he was feeding. And this is where it finally dawns on him. Verse 18, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself at home, even the hired men have enough food to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And then when he starts to head home, verse 20 says, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer willing to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Verse 23, and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. You know, this story that Jesus told here, I gotta be honest with you, in all the years that I've, that I've heard this parable, read this parable, taught on this parable. It wasn't until this past week in my study that, that the context of this passage hit home with me. See, the reason Jesus told this story is found up back up in verse two. Let's read it again in verse two. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus told this story. Now watch this now. Jesus told this story to let us know how God, our heavenly father, feels about us, notwithstanding our failures, our selfishness, or our reckless living. God still loves and cares about you more than you'll ever know. So this Father's Day morning, rather than addressing fathers specifically, earthly fathers, I want to talk about the father, your heavenly father and my heavenly father. And, and it's my hope, it's my prayer that God, who invites all of us to call him heavenly father, will give you a fresh revelation of not just who he is, but also what he's really like. Because sadly, too few people understand what God is really like. I mean, what he is really like. That's what makes this, this story so ironic. It was told to a group of people who really should have known what God was like and in fact should have been reflecting that, who he was like. The, gr the group of people, think about this, the group of people who should have known what God was really like and demonstrated that actually did exactly the opposite. They did it the least. The opening of the chapter is that Jesus, tax collectors and the sinners coming to him, and, and those term tax collectors and, and sinners, that, that deserves much more definition than I'm going to give them this morning, but they were people who were seen as, as the traitors in their society. See, we, we read that phrase tax collector, and, and we, in our mind, we, you know, we kind of default to IRS or an accountant or something like that, but that's not really the case. At the time that Jesus told this story, this story tax collectors were viewed as traitors. I mean, there was like sinners. Seriously, read through the New Testament. See how many times it talks about sinners and then tax collectors. In the Jews' minds, there was like two categories. You had sinners, and then there was a worse category, tax collectors, who were even below the sinners, right? You say, well, what, what exactly is that all about? Well, here's kind of how this worked. 
Tax collectors were Jews who actually worked for the Roman government. And, and they did exactly what their, their title implies. They collected taxes from their own fellow Jews. But many, if not all, of them leveraged their position selfishly for their own gain. Now, now here's, how, here's kind of how this worked. Uh, let, let's say that you know, during the Roman Empire, uh, the tax rate was uh, typically sometime between 1% and 3%, all right? Uh, 1% normally during times of war and conflict, they would raise it to 3% to help pay for the supplies to, to engage in battle, right? But here's the thing. Most Jews didn't know what the tax rate was, right? Only Caesar and the ruling council and the tax collectors knew what the tax rate was. So let's say Rome set the rate at 1%. Tax rate is 1%. So when the Jews would come to pay their taxes from these tax collectors, all right, fellow Jews who were working for Rome, they would come to, to pay their taxes. So the tax collector would kind of size up the situation, right? So if the person coming up to pay their taxes came walking up dressed in some raggedy torn robe, wearing sandals that were about to, to fall off, maybe smelling a little bit like they hadn't taken a bath in a few days, then the tax collector would kind of look at them and say, okay, tax is 1% today. So that Jew would pay the 1%. But if the next person that came up that came up to pay their taxes was riding in this really nice tricked out chariot, nice purple robe, new set of Birkenstocks, climbs down out of the chariot and comes up. The tax collector sees this, sees that this is a person of means and says, uh, yeah, the tax rate is 3% today. Well, what happens to that other 2%? Who gets that other 2%? The tax collector gets it. Now do you see why tax collectors were despised by Jews? They were Jews ripping off their own people. That's why they're sinners. In the Jews' eyes, there were sinners, and then there were tax collectors. See, that's what made Jesus such a compelling figure. People who were least like him were drawn to him the most. People who had no interest or association whatsoever with him, would, people that would call religion, right? They call religious people, right? They not only liked Jesus, they liked being around him. What they didn't realize was the reason that they were attracted to him was because he was the perfect example of what their heavenly father was like. Now, the problem with this passage of scripture is religion. Because the religious people were saying, we don't like that Jesus is spending time with these kind of people, these sinners and these tax collectors. So Jesus tells these three stories not only to reveal the true heart of God towards us, but also to expose the hypocrisy of those who claim to represent God, but in fact were doing just the opposite. Sadly, not unlike some segments of the church today. So in the way of quick summary, two things about Jesus' ministry. First, he came to die for our sins, but he came to display the love of God and show us what our Heavenly Father is really like. Now, here again, though, the problem when you start talking about God's love is we kind of sort of tend to think of, of God's love as kind of a sympathetic, feel sorry for us, syrupy kind of, of niceness. And that's not what God's love is at all. There's nothing syrupy about God's love. In fact, God's love is so dynamic, it's so powerful, it's deep, and it's demanding. So demanding, so demanding, in fact, that he cannot simply let us continue in our sin. In fact, that's exactly what we addressed in our Honest to God series over the last two weeks. We simply will never be who God called us to be, nor receive all that he has for us if we continue to willfully and purposely allow sin in our lives. That's why he sent his son to us, absorbing in himself the price of our sin. 
So when Jesus describes his coming, you know, you hear phrases like the son of God has come to seek and save what was lost. But then, but then he'll say, on the other hand, but I've come to show you the father. One of his disciples, John, John tells us it was Philip, said to Jesus one day, John 14, 8, Philip said, sir, show us the father and we will be satisfied. And look at Jesus reply here. Don't you even yet know who I am, Philip? Even after all this time I have been with you, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In so many words, Jesus is saying, if you want to know what God's like, then look at me, Philip. You want to know what the Father's like? Look at me. And what we see in Jesus is the love of the Father, not only in the lifestyle that he led, but also in the graciousness and forgiveness that he extended towards people even the outcast of society, even those who everyone else looked down upon, even those who have failed and perhaps fallen from grace. People, not unlike the prodigal son, who in their own way came to their senses and recognized that they've wasted their own opportunities, their own influence, their own resources. See, there's not a single person sitting in here this morning or from our e-campus church watching online who hasn't at some point in time squandered or wasted something of value in your life, right? You know, back B.C., before I, I had surrendered my life to the Lord and was, was very much a prodigal myself, we used to use this word uh, wasted to go out and describe our worldly indulgences. Friend would call up and say, hey, let's go get wasted, right? And at the time, I didn't realize how fitting that word was to describe my life. I thought I was having fun. We use the word colloquially to describe something that has withered or died. And that's exactly what was happening in my life at that point. Outwardly, I was having the time of my life. But inwardly, spiritually, because of the choices I was making, I was really dying a, a slow death. So yes, in a very real way, I was getting wasted. And spiritually, anytime something is wasted, there comes a sense of, of distance from God along with a sense of unworthiness, the feeling that God wouldn't want anything to do with me. In this parable, Jesus used to describe how your heavenly father feels about you. He mentions four things. The first two describe a couple of attributes of our heavenly father as seen in this story. Then the next two describe how those attributes benefited the son or benefit us if, if we'll embrace them and receive them. The first thing that Jesus shows us in this story is the father never loses hope. The father never loses hope. The apostle Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1.18, Oh, that the eyes of your understanding, your heart would be enlightened to see father's hopes for you. Here's how the message puts that verse. I ask, ask the God of our master, Jesus Christ, the God of glory, to make you intelligent and discerning in knowing him personally, your eyes focused and clear so that you can see exactly what he is calling you to do. Grasp the immensity of this glorious way of life that he has for his followers. Oh, the utter extravagance of his work in us who trust him, endless energy, boundless strength. Woo. Sign me up for that. Sign me up for that. You ever had a parent that had hopes for you? Or better yet, how about, your, how about you as a parent? Do you have hopes for your children? Sadly, some of you might have had parents that not only did they not have any hope for you, maybe the opposite was true. Maybe they expected you to fail. And you're not dumb. I mean, <laughs> you, you knew you were rebellious. You knew you'd been living a reckless life, but you still pick up that rejection. Others might have had parents that 
had hopes that you would never be able to match or equal or reach. And that also senses rejection on our side. You know, the thing that's really impressive about this text is that even though the son ran against everything of the father's hopes for him, still the father never lost hope for him. God doesn't give up caring about us. And he never loses his vision for what he sees our life becoming. We might, but he never does. And y'all just missed a good place to say amen. I said, and y'all just missed a good place to say amen. Amen. See, there's something about that graciousness of God. He never loses his idea of what he made you or me to be. And it's an idea that in his mind as creator, he can always bring it into being if we'll just give him that space. If, if, If we'll just give him that opportunity. That's all he needs. That's all he needs. He doesn't need any pre-existing material. In fact, anything we bring him, he couldn't use anyway. He saw us from the very beginning. He saw what we could become. And even through our prodigal years, in spite of how messed up and broken our lives might have become, our Heavenly Father is always optimistic about his plans for our life. He never loses hope. Jesus is showing us that about the Father. He never loses hope for us. The second thing that he shows us about the Father is is that the Father's always looking our way. The Father's always looking our way. He's always looking for us. His eyes are on us. Now, unfortunately, see, many people interpret that to mean that God's watching out of the corner of his eye, like God's like, that he's watching us like that. You know, just kind of waiting for us to step out of line so we can take a lightning bolt and zap us and leave a grease spot there on the sidewalk where we used to be. No, that's that's not how God is looking our way. God does, God's not angry with us. But I think oftentimes that's our own sense of alienation because of our sins. See, we're the ones that we, we tend to view him that way because we feel guilty. But that doesn't represent his heart. He's not, listen, dear ones, God is not passive about the fact that we've sinned. That's not what I'm saying. We know that because of the cross. We, we, we know he takes our sins seriously, right? That's why Jesus was sent to die for us. Sin had to be dealt with. We need to repent of it. But notwithstanding, here's what I want you to know. Notwithstanding our sin and failures and getting wasted, God's attitude toward us is always nothing short of what we see in the father of this story towards his son, the prodigal son. Luke 15, 20. So he returned home to his father. And now watch this. And while he was still a long distance away. Say that with me, would you? Long distance away. One more time. Long distance away. His father saw him coming and was filled with loving pity and ran and embraced him and kissed him. When it says that the son started back while he was a long distance away, the father saw him and ran to meet him. He didn't stand there on the porch tapping his foot. "Mm -hmm, I knew you'd be back. I knew you'd. No, no, no. He was looking. First of all, he was looking for him. That's a powerful image right there. And when he saw him, he ran out to meet him. And I'm sitting there, I'm reading this story, and I'm thinking, what is the son thinking at this point? Why? He sees his dad running towards him. What is he thinking? Uh-oh. Should I turn and run? No, the father was waiting with a loving, caring, forgiving heart. We know that because of his response when he saw his son off in the distance, walking towards home. And look at this amazing sequence of events 
on the father's part. He saw him, had compassion towards him. He ran towards him. He hugged him and he kissed him. Dear ones, those aren't the actions of an angry, judgmental father who's sitting out on the front porch, arms crossed, waiting for you to come crawling back with your tail between your legs. This isn't the action of a, of a father sitting out on the couch. It's five minutes after midnight, past curfew, waiting for you to get home so you can punish him. No. We're told that the father ran to meet him, and he'd obviously had been watching for him because he saw him at a distance on the horizon, which is an amazing picture of the heart of God that is always, always, always reaching out to us. There's a third thing about the word picture that Jesus told here, something we absolutely cannot overlook, and that's the fact that the son was repentant. Now, this is, this is a huge part of the story that shows us our responsibility in the release of God's grace and forgiveness towards us because the Father's heart responds. See, what, what moves the heart of our Heavenly Father is not our feeling bad about what we've done. What moves the heart of our Heavenly Father is a genuine brokenness on our part. David, King David, who was notorious for choosing his way over God's way at times throughout his life, put it this way, when God called him out on his affair with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, 16 and 17, this is the message, going through the motions doesn't please you. Flawless performance is nothing to you. I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. Heart shattered lives ready for love don't for a moment escape God's notice. The old English puts it this way, a broken and contrite heart he will not deny. A broken and contrite heart he will not deny. See, folks, Paul says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And we should never forget that. Never forget that. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That's part of the beauty of this story. Jesus told revealing the heart of God toward us is how he wove into it our responsibility in this process. And please note, the prodigal owned up to his problems. Do you see that? The prodigal embraced and owned up to where he was at. He didn't blame his father. He didn't say this is your fault. He clearly understood what we need to understand as well, that we make our own choices. We make our own choices. You know, it's amazing to me how much God gets blamed for and you know, if you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time at all, I'm sure you've had someone ask you a question like this or something similar. If there's a God, then why did? And then they'll cite some catastrophic, tragic event that happened. See, the truth is God, God gets blamed for everything that we don't want to accept responsibility for. When the son comes back, he says, Father, I've sinned against you in heaven. See, repentance is turning from our own way to God's way. Repentance is saying, Lord, I want to make some changes in my life. I want you, Lord, to help me begin living my life in a way that would, that would honor you and bring, bring blessing to me. Repentance is recognizing that the Lord's ways are better than our ways. It literally means, the word repentance means literally a 180 degree turn. I was walking that way and now I'm walking that way. That is what repentance means, the literal meaning of it. And when we begin to live our lives God's way instead of our way, he not only makes our life better, he makes us better at life. Because when our lives align with God's word, then it opens up the way for the Lord who loves us on any terms to begin establishing his plans and purpose for our life. 
God loves us with an everlasting, unconditional love. But for there to come the release of what he wants to do in us and through us, we have to come to that place where we say, okay, Lord, I've gone enough rounds with the world. I'm ready to try life on your terms, not mine. And when we do that, then that opens the door for God to begin to fulfill his plan and purpose for us. I mentioned this last week, but when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, what he told them is is the template for how to pray. And those of you familiar with that prayer template that we call the Lord's Prayer, know that early on in that prayer pattern, Jesus said that we need to surrender our will to his. The way he said it was, and you know this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? That's your deal over my deal, God. That's all it's saying. God, and you should pray that at the beginning of every prayer. God, before I say anything else, I just want you to know it's your deal over my deal. And if my life doesn't reflect that, help me to make those decisions and choices to where that will happen. And when the son did that, look what happens. The son received reinstatement with his father, Luke, Luke 15, 22. But his father said to the slaves, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him and a jeweled ring for his finger and shoes. These three things that the father gives to his prodigal son are, are filled with symbolism. We don't have time to develop them this morning. Each of them deserve a sermon uh, themselves. But um, again, we don't have time to do that. But the ring is symbolic of the father reinstating his son to the role in the family business that he was at before he took his inheritance and went and squandered it. In other words, he's receiving him back into partnership with the father. And God is saying through the lips of his own son, if you'll come back to me, I want to reinstitute the possibilities that I had in mind for you in our partnership together. It's the Lord promising to make his purpose powerful in us just as the father was going to refranchise his disenfranchised son in the family business. The word that Luke used to describe the robe that was placed over the prodigal shoulders was used to describe a a full-length robe that went all the way down to the ankles. It was a robe of dignity. It's the father's, it's it's the symbolic of the father covering whatever would be the, the shame or the nakedness or the scars from our past and the time that he spent out in the world and even in the pig pen. The shoes, they're a statement about the removal from the loss and mourning of the past the weeping. The shoes being put on was the father's way of saying, there's coming to an end the time of weeping. Without elaborating any of those things, can you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, look, this is what God is like. This is what your father's like. He wants to reinstitute the place he has for you in partnership with his purpose for you. He wants to clothe you from whatever's been the embarrassment or shame or scars from your past. This, dear ones, is what your heavenly father is like in those shoes He wants us to be able to walk away from that into his new plan and purpose and hope that he had for us. Now, one last thing. You know, we've seen a wonderful picture of what God's like. He's a father who never loses hope for you. He's a father who's always looking towards you, looking for you. And he's a father who's always willing to respond in love when we turn his way in repentance and restore the hope he has for us. But see, for some of you here today, you need a different word from this parable. You aren't the wayward son. Instead, you feel the pain of the father because some of you are parents and grandparents who have prodigals in your family, a son or a daughter who might be living their own rebellious and, and reckless life 
or maybe not even rebellious and reckless. Maybe they just don't see a need to serve God. Maybe they just don't see a need for God in their life right now. Either way, it still hurts, doesn't it? It still hurts as a, as a parent because you know the life that they could have if only they would come to their senses. If only they would come to their, sense, their senses and return to the Father. If you're in that condition, if you're in that situation, I have a word of comfort for you today. To the parents of prodigals, I would say, first of all, God understands your pain. God knows and he cares. He's the suffering father in this parable, so he really does understand. Second, and this is important, don't jump into the pig pen to rescue them. In this parable, the father didn't go to the pig pen to try and pull his son out. See, that would have been tragic. The son had to realize his own mistake. So, and I, I know this is hard. I know it's hard, but you need to pray for wisdom in exercising tough love. Because remember, God used the pig pen to bring him to that realization. So God understands your pain. Second, don't be quick to jump into the pig pen to rescue them. Pray for wisdom and how to deal with that. But third, let them know the door is always open. What's the old commercial, Motel 6? Let them know you'll leave the light on. The light's always on when you're ready to come home. Don't go to the pig pen, but never slam the door on them either. Let them know that you'll leave the light on when they're ready to repent. So parents of prodigals, whatever you do, don't give up. As long as they're breathing, there's hope. There's hope. This Father's Day, in addition to honoring our fathers, let's also be mindful to honor our Heavenly Father. How? How can we honor our Heavenly Father? The same way that this prodigal son did, by returning to his father with an attitude of repentance and receiving the ring of renewed partnership with him the robe of covering our past and hope for the future and the shoes that he offers us so we can walk away from the memories of loss and mourning and walk in that new hope that he had in mind for us when he created us. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, this Father's Day, in addition to honoring all of our fathers, we also want to honor you, Lord. Not, to, not just by repenting and receiving all that you offer us as, as our loving Father, but also by making sure that our lives accurately reflect the love and grace that you extend to us. Don't, don't let us be guilty of doing what the Pharisees did, claiming to represent you, but doing just the opposite. May we always be mindful to share the same love, grace, and forgiveness that you gave us with others, no matter who they are or what they've done. And for those who might have a prodigal son or daughter, I pray for an added measure of grace, wisdom, patience, and faith as they continue to trust you and look to you and for those with us this morning or perhaps watching from our eCampus church, watching our live stream, that would say, you know, Pastor, I heard the sermon and I have a better understanding of an appreciation for God's heart towards me, but, you know, honestly, I've never really taken that first step of faith. I, I've really never even began a, a life with Christ. And please understand, when I'm talking about this new life in, in Christ, I'm not, I'm not talking about joining a church. This, this isn't about becoming a church member. I'm talking about the prodigal son's repentance where he turns away from his own way to the Lord's will, where, where he finally prays and means, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And Jesus was very clear about this. There's only one way to the Father, and that's through his son, Jesus Christ, who the, who the Father sent to die for our sins so we could come home. So if that's you, it would be my honor to pray for you lead you in a prayer where you can come home or come back home to the Father.
If you just be willing to pray the simple prayer and say, Heavenly Father, thank you for your loving, gracious, patient heart towards me. Thank you that even during all this time that my heart's been far from you, still you have been patiently waiting and looking for me. And now I want to come home, Lord. I want to come home, Daddy. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for me. I believe that Jesus Christ is your only begotten son who came to die for me, was raised from the dead for me, and is now seated at your right hand. And right now, I receive the ring, the robe, and the shoes that you offer me through Jesus Christ so I can be restored in a right relationship with you and begin walking in the hope that you have for me and living the abundant life that you offer me through Christ. Come live inside of me by your Holy Spirit, Jesus. And help me begin living for you. In Jesus' name, amen.